utilizing our children's ministry, you can, you can go and check them in now. For those of you whose kids are staying in the service, just again, we, we love having children in the service with us, and they can utilize that, uh, that bulletin, uh, that worship guide to kind of continue to follow along this morning. We have been working through just slowly, uh, just kind of paragraph by paragraph, our Confession of Faith, the London uh, Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, known as the 1689. And, this morning, and we've been looking at, <clears throat> for the last nine, ten weeks or so, the uh, chapter that highlights Christ as mediator. And this morning, I just want to read to you paragraph 9 of chapter 8. It says this, the office of mediator between God and humanity. And, and again, these are in most of the pews in front of you. You're welcome to follow along. But the office of mediator between God and humanity is appropriate for Christ alone, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. This office may not be transferred from him to anyone else, either in whole or in part. And so we don't need uh, another priest to go on our behalf to the Lord. Jesus Christ is forever uh, our perfect prophet, priest, and king. And that's good news for us. Amen. Mark chapter 6 is where we are. And so if you have your Bibles... Turn with me there, Mark chapter 6. We've been working through this particular chapter over the last several weeks. And this morning, really, um, and if, you were, if you've been following along with us, you will notice that Mark, for us, uh, com- uh, he, he contrasts the banquet that we, for lack of a better word, visited last week, which was a wicked party by a wicked man, and, and now we're at another banquet. We're at another party, if you will, and it's one that Christ has for the multitude. And, and I don't think that it's a coincidence that we have these two banquets, if you will, set against one another. And so I'm going to read just the, the, the type of banquet that Christ throws. And again, contrasting that with Herod Antipas and his, the way his kingdom functions and the type of party, type of banquet that he threw that we saw last week. And then I'm going to pray, and then we'll work through this text together. But I'm going to start with verse 30, and I've read verses 30 to 31, and I'll explain just briefly why in a moment. I've read this passage the last several weeks, but the word of the Lord says this, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not have even time enough to eat. Verse 32. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him, knew Christ, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, 
This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he, speaking of Christ, answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth, which is two, two, around 200 days' wages? Shall we go and buy that amount of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Five loaves, two fishes. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. We go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we um, are thankful for your word. And God, it's not lost on me that this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, God. And I am thankful, we are thankful that we live in a country, Lord, where so many sacrifice so that we could enjoy the freedoms, God, that Many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world are not presently enjoying. So thank you for allowing us to open your word this morning, God, and to not be afraid to do it. And Lord, we thank you that this is a word that you've inspired. God, this is a word that you've preserved. God, this is a miracle that really happened. This is a historical account, not not fiction. And God, that we can commune with you through this word. We can see Christ more clearly through this word. We can be comforted. We can be encouraged. We can be provoked to continue on by your spirit. And we thank you for that. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So no doubt, this is a categorically different kind of banquet than the one that we looked at last week, right? It is its opposite in every way imaginable. And Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he's intentionally set this banquet of light, if you will, against the banquet of darkness that we saw last week, right? Last week, we saw the type of banquet that wicked rulers throw, right? In the, in the banquet, it spoke much to the character of the individual, right? Last week, we saw a self-centered feast. Last week, we saw debauchery evident in our text, and we saw the culmination, right, of, of Herod Antipas's party, which was the execution of a holy and a just man. And in contrast to that, this morning, right, we see, again, the type of banquet that 
Jesus throws, right? And, and Mark is, again, deliberate in putting this contrast, setting this before us in the text, right? Last week, we saw a wicked king and the ways in which his kingdom functions. This morning, we see a good king, a selfless king, and we get a glimpse into how his kingdom works, One commentator writes this. He says, quote, at this banquet, Jesus presides. It's held not in a fortress, not in a palace, but in the open air and rolling hills of Galilee. And the invitation is not restricted to important people. And this miracle that we have set before us is significant. It's the, in fact, the, the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you've been following along in chapter 6, especially, uh, it feels busy. that the, 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 the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of these apostles, it feels busy. In fact, I, I read those verses, again, that I've read over these last several weeks, verses 31 and 32, because I think it connects everything together well and helps give us a sense of this busy ministry that Christ and the apostles are doing. But our text opens up with the apostles reporting back to Jesus on everything that they've done and everything that they've taught so far on this kind of trial commission, this mini commission. And ministry is so busy at this point that Jesus and the apostles, they didn't even have time to eat, right? They kept being interrupted by the needs of the multitude. And so we see them trying to get to a deserted place out into the wilderness, away from the cities, away from the the hustle and bustle of, of life, if you will, so that they can commune with Jesus and so that they may rest, both spiritually rest and, and physically rest. This had to be an exhausting uh, task that they were consistently engaged with. And, and this seems to be an important habit that Jesus had. Right? We see in, in verses, if, and again, I'd encourage you, you know, have your Bibles open kind of in your lap looking along with me, but we see in verses 46 and 47 of this chapter that Jesus does in, end up getting away to pray. We saw back in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, that Jesus would go to a solitary place to pray probably uh, early in the morning. So it's, it's perfectly fine for us to see that he's training the apostles kind of on the go to do the same thing, to go to the solitary place, to go out into the wilderness, the open land to rest. That would be a habit that would energize their ministry and that would shape their character to consistently do that. But more than, more than all of that, as I said, it was the place of communing with God, which is an end in and of itself, communing with the Lord. So they're on their way to do that in our text this morning, and the crowd follows after them. Maybe the multitude knows where they're headed because this is their habit, or maybe they know where Jesus and the apostles are headed because they can kind of see the general area from from the land uh, that they're on. And they, they go out into the deserted place, they go out into the wilderness, and they do so with the purpose of meeting with Jesus. And they beat him there, right? They they get there before Christ arrives. And, and when Christ arrives, right, he sees the multitude. And instead of being 
frustrated, instead of being irritated or annoyed because they're interrupting the, the time of rest that Jesus and the apostles were looking to have, Jesus looks at them with compassion. He looks at them with compassion. And that Greek word translated into compassion is used only of Jesus in the New Testament. It's used only of Jesus in the New Testament. But Christ, he has compassion on them. He, and he, he, he looks out, right, and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, boys and girls, right, the Bible often refers to us as sheep. And, and if you know anything about sheep, you know that they need constant attention. There's always a predator. There's always a, a wolf seeking to get the sheep, but the sheep also wander aimlessly uh, without, just wander aimlessly without a shepherd. They even end up wandering off of cliffs because as they graze, they're not paying attention to what's going on. And this is a good picture of what our lives look like apart from Jesus, who's our shepherd. Now, I'll talk about this more in just a moment, but if we're sheep and if Jesus is the shepherd, then we should see that it's, it's very important for us to follow him, right? To, to not do so is to be in constant spiritual danger. But Jesus, he looks at these people and he has compassion on them because they're lost. They're without a shepherd. And our text says, verse 34, that Jesus began, quote, to teach them many things, to teach them many things. Now, we don't have to speculate about what Jesus is, what he's teaching the multitude here. We noted it already a few weeks back that Jesus faithfully expounded the scriptures. He testified that he was the fulfillment of the scriptures. And by the way, when we see the word scriptures being used in the New Testament, we know that it's speaking about what? The Old Testament. It's speaking about the Old Testament. Jesus would use the Old Testament to demonstrate that he is the Messiah. He is the one who has authority. And this teaching went on all day. And get this, the, the multitude remained. The multitude stayed put. They, they weren't going anywhere. They were there to see Jesus. They came out into the wilderness to commune with Jesus. And as the day goes on, his disciples, his apostles particularly, finally interrupt him and ask Jesus to dismiss the multitude so that they can go to the surrounding cities to find food. In fact, it's John that gives us more insight into this interaction. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read you a few verses to kind of color the context of, a, a bit more for us. But John chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, this is John's account. It says, Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test them, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, 
but what are they among so many? Now, if we harmonize that with our Mark passage, we can say that we, we see Jesus say to Philip and thus to the rest of the apostles, you give them something to eat. That's what we see in verse 37. You give them something to eat, right? Christ has been feeding the multitude all day through his, his preaching and through his teaching, and now he tells the apostles to get in on it. They need to get in on it. And he doesn't, again, remember, he's training them. He's teaching them, right? And he, he tells them to get, get in on what he's doing by um, putting them to the test through, through, through leveraging the physical need amongst the multitude. He, he's divinely orchestrated everything that we are seeing in our text this morning. Now, after the apostles have surveyed everything that they had, which wasn't much, right? They, they told Jesus they didn't have enough, right? And, and this is where we see the climax of the story, right? The Lord, our Lord, he takes five loaves, right? He takes two fishes and he prays, right? He says a blessing, probably a, a standard Jewish, Jewish blessing. However, unlike bowing the head in a standard Jewish blessing and, and the way that we typically pray as well, right? Bowing our heads. Jesus, instead, he looks up, looks up to heaven, right? Our text says, quote, and taking the five loaves and two fishes, he looks up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, to set before the people. Now, I think Mark is in, intentional in his phrasing of this, this particular verse. Uh, and, and I'll explain why that is in just a few moments. Just note it for now. But, but after the Lord says this blessing, right, after he gives thanks, the apostles distribute and everyone, quote, ate until they were satisfied. That's what we see in verse 42. In fact, the, we know there were leftovers, right? Twelve baskets full of leftovers. And this portion of our chapter, it ends with a number, right? 5,000 men. And, and certainly that can be related to uh, the, the Passover uh, that, that was happening, right? Could be because there were mostly men there. But there were probably women and children that were present there too. So this number could, could have been much higher, um, than, than even 5,000. Now, a few things for us, I think, to, by God's grace, consider and internalize as we are, again, looking at this section in Mark chapter 6. And the first is this, if you're taking notes. And kids, you can jot this down as well in your, in your worship guide too. The first is this, the wilderness is transformed into a place of, it's transformed by Christ into a place of rest. The wilderness is transformed by Christ into a place of rest. Jesus and, and his apostles, they went out to the desolate place, to, to the wilderness where men didn't dwell. And this multitude, again, goes, goes after them. They go out into the wilderness to meet with Christ. And it's Christ alone that makes this des, desolate place a, a, a place of genuine rest. 
Right? But before the ministry of Jesus and his humanity, right, during his, his first advent, before he started kind of his, his three-year ministry, people did go out into the wilderness to see who? See John the Baptist, right? If we remember, they'd go out to see John the Baptist. But what we see Christ do here in the wilderness is different. It's demonstrative of, 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 of Jesus being the eternal God. John the Baptist did not do in the wilderness what we see Christ do here, right? Jesus is turning this desolate place into this retreat for the 5,000 plus. It demonstrates his power as God. And, and note that there seems to be this contentment with Jesus in the wilderness. That, that's what's so um, striking to me about this historical account. Nobody's eager to go home, right? No, nobody's looking at their watch, are they? As far as we know, nobody's even complaining about being hungry, right? There's no uproar about food, no discontentment. In fact, it's, it's the apostles that end up making this need known in Mark's account, right? But in this particular version that Mark records for us, there's, we get no sense that anybody is in a hurry. Right? The day has gone on long, right? Christ taught until it grew late. So I've been thinking about that contentment that, that we see evidenced in this passage because, frankly, we need that, don't we? We need contentment, right? The, the scene opens with, with what I would consider a, a holy discontentment from the multitude, right? They're not with Jesus, and they long to be with Jesus. And it ends with contentment, right? Them just being with him. Now, certainly in a crowd this large, there would be mixed motives as to why people were there to see Jesus, but Mark doesn't give us any insight into that, right? It's not the point that's being made in this text, all we see is them remaining with Christ, in a way abiding with Christ. So imagine for a moment just the this, this situation. The multitude travels out to this desolate place, right? They're far en enough away from home that when the apostles suggest they leave, it's to neighboring cities, not necessarily to their own uh, homes. And it's been some time since the people have eaten. Who knows how long it's been truly Yet, they lingered with Jesus. Right? They listened as he taught what our text describes as many things. Many things. And they did this in the wilderness. They did this in the deserted place. And you know, we, we could take this a couple of ways. One way is this. We should get to a place of silence and solitude so that we can spend time with the Lord. Right? That, that's one route that we can take as we're considering or contemplating this passage of Scripture, right? Time with, with the Lord, meaning time reading His Word, time speaking to Him through this means of prayer that He's given to us, right? And that should be genuinely a regular habit in our lives that we're cultivating, right? Christians that want to be with Christ. Who would have thunk, right? Is that true of us? Is that true of us, Christians, do we long to be with Christ? But I want to press in as well another way that we can take, and I want to chase this down for a minute or two. 
We can press in on this imagery of wilderness, of the desolate place. Right? Much of our lives is spent in what we might call the desolate place. Right? If we could define it, maybe we would call it the place that we wander, the, the place where we feel like we can't rest, the place that we aren't comfortable, the place where we're not quite satisfied or we don't feel like we're at home. And as we look around in the desolate place, this, this wilderness, we know that things aren't as they should be, right? There, there's still much that needs to be set right in our world, right? We see and experience on a daily basis the impact of the fall on this world, all the thorns and thistles, right? The, the, the hardness of this life. Our life isn't long, but our life is hard, isn't it? We see and experience Sin, right? Sins against us, sins that we commit against God and against other people. We see and experience sorrows and sicknesses and various types of sufferings. Yet, God made a way for us to sojourn with Christ in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the desolate place. The question is, are we content with Christ? That's genuinely the question set before us, one of the questions set before us this morning. Are we content with Christ, or do we demand that our circumstances be set in order, right, to be set right according to our standards before we're content with Christ? So are we content with Christ? And again, as Christians, are we content with Christ? Or are we living our lives in such a way that we're demanding that our circumstances, our various situations that we all come from, be set right before we can get to a place of being content? You know, we organize our Lord's Day service around Christ. Right? We organize it around Christ. Our aim is to exalt Christ to you, to help us to collectively remember Christ, Christ Jesus. And in doing so, on this very important day of the week, this most important day, we have for us a template, a, a pattern, if you will, of resting and trusting in Jesus, no matter our station in life, no matter our circumstances in life. And if you find yourself struggling this morning with your circumstances, you know, maybe things aren't as you want them to be. Very rarely are they, by the way, right? But if you find yourself struggling this morning with, with your circumstances, and if you find yourself with that wrestling with things like bitterness or envy or feeling entitled to something that perhaps you don't have but you observe in other people, which is covetousness, right? Or just this constant unsettledness. If you feel constantly unsettled, you have to come face to face with the reality that you are not content with Jesus. You're not content. Right? No matter the wilderness that we live in or face, Jesus can transform it into a place of rest. He can transform it into a place of rest. He can transform it into a very retreat. He can calm your inner person. And this inner peace will have a transformation in your life. You know, I'm struck by how David, King David in the Bible, right, in the Old Testament, I'm struck by how as he periodically had to flee his enemies, right, actual people that wanted to kill him, 
by the way, right, while hiding in a cave, he had the audacity to speak of God as a refuge. You ever thought about that? He had the audacity to speak of God as a fortress. That's a pervasive thought throughout the Psalms, right? And, and I think that can so often be lost on us as Westerners because we are drowning on all these good gifts and we take these good gifts that God's given us and we make them into ultimate things that, again, cloud our contentment in the Lord. So I would suggest to us this morning that in the most vulnerable and difficult seasons of life, We can still find comfort. We can still find strength. We can still find rest in the Lord. So are you in a wilderness this morning? Maybe you're thinking that, you know, the multitude chose to go out there, but I did not choose to go out there. Providence has me there, right? That's okay, right? Like the multitude, you can find and commune with Jesus in your wilderness. And like the multitude, you can be content because it's Christ who turns that wilderness into a place of rest, so that's the first thing we need to remember this morning. Secondly, Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Yes, pastors, elders, and I think of those phrases synonymous with one another because the Bible teaches that there isn't a difference between pastors and elders. But pastors are shepherds, but Christ is the chief shepherd. He's the chief shepherd, and this is truly good news for you because your pastor is going to let you down. And some of you may be saying, yeah, I know that. But Christ will never let you down. Christ will never let you down. There's so much Old Testament imagery and fulfillment in this particular miracle here. It's one of the reasons why I think all of the gospel writers uh, include it. But I want to take you to a couple of places. If you have your Bibles, turn with me just for a moment. Ezekiel, go to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm going to look together, verses 7 to 16. And this prophecy of the Lord through Ezekiel to shepherds speaking of people that were entrusted to care for the souls of image bearers. It says this, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds even search for the flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, these are terrifying words. I am against the shepherds. I'm against the shepherds and I will require my flock at their hand. I'll cause them to cease feeding the sheep and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. The shepherds at some point, we're beginning to devour the sheep that they were supposed to care for, right? Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock. On the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them 
from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountain of Israel in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I'll feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I'll make them lie down says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost, bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken, and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. Strong words, right? An indictment on shepherds and a prophecy about God himself being a shepherd. Or consider the very familiar Psalm 23, just the first three verses. Many of you have this memorized, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, what? Want. I shall not be in need. There's contentment there, isn't there? And he says, he leads me beside the still waters, or he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. We, We see the fulfillment of these Old Testament passages in our very passage this morning. We see it elsewhere in the New Testament, but we see it here in our text in Mark 6 as well. But, you know, we, we see Christ. He looks at the multitude and he looks at them with compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd, right? Verse 34, right? There was no one to care for them. They were wandering aimlessly. They were vulnerable to their enemy, the devil, who seeks to devour, right, who prowls around like a lion. And in his compassion, Jesus shepherds them. He shepherds them. He ministers to their souls. He provides spiritual nourishment to them. That's the very thing we see him do. It says he began to teach them many things, right? The spiritual need was the priority here, right? Soul food was the priority here because our souls never die, right? Our souls go on forever. In Christ, he gives himself to this multitude. We also see in his meeting of their physical needs through this miracle, his making this multitude sit down in green pastures, right? Verse 39 says he had them sit down in green grass, right? Which makes, makes Psalm 23 come to my mind, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Sheep need guidance. Sheep need protection. Sheep need provision. And we know that Christ is ultimately the one who provides this. In John's gospel, chapter 10, verse 11, he says, quote, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. What better example do we have of Christ being the good shepherd than his cross? where he gave himself for you and for me. Though we were undeserving, though we were wandering and grazing, getting ready to fall off a cliff and we didn't even know about it, Christ saved us. And Christ, who has been a faithful shepherd, chief shepherd, he continues that work even now in his glorified and resurrected and ascended state. And he continues that work now through the ministry of of under-shepherds. And that's our third point, final point this morning. Jesus has entrusted his church 
to under-shepherds so that we might feast on Christ. Jesus has entrusted His church to under-shepherds so that we might feast on Christ, so that we might feast on Him. And when I say under-shepherds, I mean pastors and elders for today. But this shepherding work, it started with the apostles, right? Remember, this is an office that you know, we've talk, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is an office that doesn't exist anymore, but this is where it started. Now, I'm only using the term under-shepherds to make the obvious connection that Jesus is the chief shepherd, and in fact, his under-shepherds are accountable to him, right? That pastors, elders will stand before God and give an account for the souls that have been entrusted to them. But I want to connect the dots for us just a bit more. So listen closely on this. Think of, think, think of the miracle moment, right? the, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. Right? Philip comes on behalf of the apostles, and he makes the physical need of the multitude known. And the consensus among the apostles is that the multitude shall be, should be sent away so that they have time to go and, and find food and perhaps find shelter as well. But Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Verse 37, you give them something to eat. Now, in the Greek, Jesus is emphasizing what is translated as you in this passage. He's saying you, meaning the apostles, you give them something to eat. And Jesus, according to the apostles John's account, is testing the apostles. And we see later in in verse 52 of our text, Mark chapter 6, that this teachable moment was lost on them because of the hardness of their heart. But Jesus, just I read this a moment ago. Let me just quickly read it again. John recounts again, the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he said, but this he said to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus was strategically putting the apostles in a place of desperation, right? Feed all these people feed all these people. The apostles look around, right? Maybe they, they begin to count their, their money amongst them, and you can almost sense the despair on their end, right? And then Jesus provides the means by which this mission that he gives them is to be accomplished, right? He does the same thing in the Great Commission, He tells the apostles to to make disciples and give Trinitary baptisms in the whole world. And they were looking around and perhaps counting how many people were in attendance to hear those instructions. And Christ tells them that it's in his authority that they'll do it. And that's what we see here. It isn't Jesus personally who hands out the endless loaves and fishes. He gives thanks to God. Right? He blesses the provisions, and then he performs the miracle. Then the apostles hand the fishes and the loaves out. The apostles feed the people only what Christ has given to them. Right? The apostles feed the people only what Christ has given to them. The apostles give out the food that Christ feeds them with. Christ provides. Christ is the provision and the apostles hand out, right? They give what they receive. That's the only thing they're authorized to do. Interestingly enough, the phrasing, and I mentioned, or told you to pay attention to this at the beginning of the sermon, but that phrasing in verse 41 is so similar to the phrasing in Mark chapter 14, verse, verses uh, 22 
or particularly verse 22. And I just want to read and make this connection for us because I think Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, was making this connection. Verse 41 in our text says, And when he, Jesus, had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and he blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided amongst them all. And then chapter 14, you're welcome to turn over there, verses 22 to 25, covering the institution of the Lord's Supper. John Mark says this, And as they were eating, get this, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and he gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I'll no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink, drink it in the new, kingdom of God, new in the kingdom of God. Uh, the, the apostles, they handed out fishes and loaves from the Lord that he had blessed at this miracle that we're looking at this morning. But there was a better meal that was coming. There was a better banquet, a better feast, one that they were to administer in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? One that Christ blessed and broke, one in which symbolized union with him and a feasting on him as spiritual sustenance, right? The apostle Paul, or the apostles, and we see this in the apostle Paul's writing, would indeed ensure that this meal would be one that would continue as they faithfully distribute it to the churches, right? In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, I received from the Lord that which, I, uh, uh, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed. Right? What was delivered is what was given to the apostles is what was given to the church, this grand feeding in light of the sufficiency of Jesus, his body broken, his blood spilled. And so the apostles, they were to become the under-shepherds. They were to ensure that the souls of sheep were cared for. They were to feed the sheep with spiritual food that is Christ. And I can hear Christ's words to them again as they did that, as we read through the New Testament. You give them something to eat. And as we've seen in Mark already, Jesus, who's the cornerstone, entrusted the apostles to lay the foundation of the church. And if we follow the New Testament, we see that the apostles in turn entrusted the care of the assembly, the gathered local churches to elders, pastors. Right? That's why today when we think of under shepherds and when we think of how Jesus cares spiritually for his church, we should see the provision that he's given in the elders of the church. Right? And elders should be faithful in their pointing not to themselves, but to Christ Jesus alone. The elders should be faithful in helping the church to feast on Jesus. The church exists for Christ. She's his bride. She's his body. The church isn't a social club, right? It's not a social club. The elders aren't called to be event planners, right? the, the elders of the church have been charged to administer the word of God publicly and privately. And church, pray for us. Pray for us because we can't do that faithfully with any longevity in our own sense. I quoted from Sproul last week, but I found this comment by him interesting as I prepped for this morning. The late R.C. Sproul, he said this, We live in a time 
and I don't know when this was published, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. He says, we live in a time when churches are weak, and one of the main reasons is that people demand the pastor, the elders, do everything but preach and teach. In other words, the exaltation of Christ through the ministry of preaching and teaching in church culture can often get sidelined by the expectations people have for what a pastor or what elder should do with their time. And in many ways, this can be self-inflicted, can it? The, the, the elders or the pastors can end up setting that expectation. Right? We live in a day and age where pastors function more like CEOs and marketing experts and elder teams are thought of as a, a, a board of advisors. Right? In, in our fast-paced kind of consumeristic society, things like prioritizing prayer and study and silence and writing and preaching and teaching and the private ministry of the Word, private instruction of the Word of God are often neglected because they don't seem practical enough or visible enough. And we have to resist the urge to begin thinking and functioning in this way. We don't want to get into the habit of thinking and functioning in a way that undermines the primacy of God's Word and prayer and the exaltation of Jesus. The care of your soul is by Christ, and He has under-shepherds, elders, to help point toward Him, to point us all toward Him. And we see the seedbed, if you will, of that this morning with Jesus and the apostles. So, dear part, church family, as we consider this passage, let us remember a few things. First, may we be content with Christ. May we be content with Christ. And, and you can foster that contentment through your habits, okay? Bible intake, prayer. Second, may we see that He can transform even the most desolate of places into a place of rest, right? No matter what your circumstances are, right? Frankly, it's usually in the more desolate seasons of our lives that we're given an even greater opportunity to enjoy intimacy and communion with the Lord, isn't it? Third, may we always look to him as our chief shepherd. And as we do that, may we see that the elders of the church have been tasked with faithfully exalting Christ. And in response to that, may we help them do that faithfully by praying for them to be faithful in that most important task. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Mark 6, Lord, and the things that we're seeking to glean from Again, you're living an active word, God. We ask that you would use it to search us, God. Bring peace, rest, contentment, God, repentance in the areas of our lives that we need to walk in repentance and faith, Lord. And God, as we now come to the table, God, a meal that, God, you instituted through Christ. Help us to remember our union with him. Help us to remember that he is, in fact, our spiritual sustenance. And we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.